I'm at the airport in Lagos and electricity just went off for this is five minutes and there's still no light at the airport, the international airport in Lagos. Ooh, finally we got lights. <laughs> Lagos, Nigeria is one of the largest cities in the world. It's home to over 14 million people and one of Africa's main economic hubs. It's the most populous city in the country with Africa's largest GDP. However, in Lagos, even basic services are unreliable. Everything comes to life when there's light. So when there's no light, you can literally feel handicapped. This isn't a new problem in Lagos. An unstable power grid and political corruption make providing everyday utilities, like electricity, a struggle. In 2016, The Guardian reported on a neighborhood that went without power for five years because its residents refused to pay bribes. These kinds of challenges are not unique to Lagos or even to Nigeria. Across the developing world, from Jakarta to Kinshasa, cities are growing rapidly. New residents are pouring into cities that have neither the infrastructure nor the institutions to adequately serve them. In his 2005 book, Planet of Slums, urban theorist Mike Davis chronicled the rise of million-person cities in the developing world. He described the lives of the more than one billion people who live in the world's slums. Booming populations of these fast-growing cities find themselves in harsh living conditions, flooded streets, poor ventilation, little to no waste clearance, and few basic services. The absence of infrastructure makes life dangerous. Lack of access to sanitation and healthcare are directly responsible for high infant and maternal mortality. Communicable diseases that have become a thing of the past elsewhere run rampant. Despite these challenges, people across the developing world are seeking out the economic opportunities that cities provide. So is there another way? Another avenue for people in search of a better life to access not only economic opportunities, but also stable governance and reliable institutions. In this episode, we'll be looking at one possible solution. Charter cities, built sometimes almost from scratch in developing countries. These developments are outside the box infrastructure. Rather than reforming or building on existing cities, they are new constructions, often with their own economic regulations and laws, privately backed and focused on bringing economic growth to emerging economies. Supporters see them as a way to theoretically seed the ground for more stable institutions and improved governance. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Beneath the Surface a podcast series from Stripe Press exploring new ideas and big questions in the world of infrastructure. I'm your host, Tamara Winter. It's not an accident that the first episode begins in Nigeria. That's where I was born. My family moved to the United States when I was just two months old. But growing up in Texas, I often wondered, what if instead of being raised in Dallas, I grew up in Lagos, like the majority of my family? That question is part of why I've always been so fascinated by questions about development and specifically 
about Africa's trajectory. It's part of my story. I'm also no stranger to the world of new cities. I used to work at the Charter Cities Institute. We'll actually hear from the Institute's founder, Mark Letter, a little later in this episode. The Institute, based in Washington, D.C., is a nonprofit that's working to build the ecosystem for charter cities by developing institutional frameworks to guide their creation. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty, I want to be really clear about some of the words we're using in this episode. You've already heard me say new cities and charter cities. There's a pretty broad ecosystem of new city projects. So when we're talking about the whole landscape, I'll use the term new cities. Charter cities are just one part of that world, the part most focused on leveraging the creation of new cities for global development. So what are charter cities? And where did the idea for them come from in the first place? If you spend any amount of time talking to folks about new cities, there's one name that will keep popping up. Paul Romer. Paul Romer. Professor Paul Romer. Paul Romer. He's not a household name, but he's been one of the most influential economists in the world for the last 20 years. He's a former chief economist at the World Bank, and in 2018, he even won the Nobel Prize. Dear Professor Romer, the tools you have developed broaden the scope of economic analysis. I now ask you to receive your prizes from His Majesty the King. He's a big deal, if you're an economist. But that's not why all these people mention his name. In 2009, he gave a TED Talk. Now, this might not seem that exciting, an economist giving a 20-minute lecture about his new idea. In fact, if you watch the talk, it's on YouTube. You might not walk away inspired to start a city of your own. Romer walks on stage, his hair more salt than pepper, and close-cropped, wearing blue jeans and a dark suit jacket over a button-down shirt. He paces back and forth while he talks, a clicker in his right hand occasionally changing slides behind him. His voice is steady, not monotonous, but not in orders. The talk has been posted on YouTube for just over 12 years and has only a little more than 150,000 views. However, for many who saw this talk back in 2009, who were captivated by Romer's ideas, it was an aha moment like when the Beatles first went on the Ed Sullivan Show. Back in 1964, a generation of young music lovers saw four guys from Liverpool playing music on their TV and thought to themselves, maybe my friends and I can do that. Inspired by Romer's talk, many entrepreneurs began wondering the same kind of thing. What if they could build charter cities too? So, Romer's idea, charter cities. New cosmopolitan growth centers that would promote economic development and connect developing countries to the rest of the global economy. Romer's proposed cities would be more than special economic zones, areas with different economic regulations. They would also be special governance zones, places where different laws would allow for faster economic growth thanks to better institutions. Romer imagines cities located in developing countries administered by the governments of developed countries. Now, more than 12 years after Romer's talk, if you ask some of the people most involved with the movement what charter cities are and what purposes they serve, you'll get pretty different answers. 
I think of a charter city as a special jurisdiction that is a, a geographic area that has different laws and institutions from the rest of the country. And the amount of difference has to be more than a special economic zone, which typically just has some tax breaks, tariff breaks, uh, a small number of legal changes. That was Patry Friedman. He runs Pronomos Capital, a venture capital firm which invests in new city projects. Their slogan? Better laws, better lives. Oh, and if you caught that, his last name is Friedman. <laughs> yeah, he's the grandson of legendary economist Milton Friedman. He got his start in the world of new cities when he founded the Seasteading Institute, a nonprofit that worked to establish autonomous communities on free-floating platforms stationed in international waters. Friedman's interest in new cities came from his analysis of governance as a kind of product that should be subject to updates. Why do our cell phones get better every year and our governments maybe occasionally get better, maybe sometimes degrade? And what I realize is that if you throw away all of the morality and philosophy and just say, okay, this is an industry, what characteristics does it have? Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute, has a slightly more technical definition of what constitutes a charter city. So a charter city is a new city with better laws. Paul Romer, for example, was advocating a high-income country such as Canada act as the guarantor in a low-income country such as Honduras. And the Charter Cities Institute moved away from this, I guess, idea, this definition, arguing for a public-private partnership. Letter founded the Charter Cities Institute just one year after finishing his PhD in economics. In his view, charter city developments, if and when successful, will have long-term positive impacts beyond the cities themselves. Charter cities have primarily been focused on emerging markets, creating a space with new institutions. So this would be going to places like Nigeria, Zambia, Honduras, and creating new city developments that allowed for people to be able to hire more easily, to uh, resolve disputes more easily, to pay taxes, to register a business, uh, having a government that's uh, effective at providing public goods. And this would allow for sustained economic development over time. The Institute's website lists some of the existing cities that they see as examples of this model. Jurisdictions that improved their governance and, as a result, their economic output. Dubai, Singapore, Shenzhen, Hong Kong. These cities have all experienced astronomical growth in relatively short periods of time. The Institute's website has a slideshow with before and after images of each city and information about their growth. The images that accompany these numbers are just as striking. Shenzhen in 1980 is a pastoral scene of green fields, rolling hills, and distant mountains, home to about 300,000 people. But by 2017, it's all sleek skyscrapers and glowing lights, a metropolis with a population to rival New York City. Oh, and the average yearly income increased over 10,000%. Rousing these figures, listening to Friedman and Letter, and hearing Romer's optimism echoing from 2009, it's easy to understand why so many people are so dedicated to promoting the idea of new cities. But what do these numbers really mean? Who are these cities being built by? And maybe more importantly, who are they being built for? 
I first met Muya Masokotwane on a trip to a remote island in Zambia. I was there as part of my work for the Charter Cities Institute. Muya is a stoic, physically imposing guy, well over six feet tall. I've known him for a while now, and he's basically got two speeds, full suit and sweatsuit. He's either in boardrooms, meeting with elected officials, and giving presentations, or he's at home being a doting dad, the kind who keeps a lot of pictures of his daughter in his pocket and on his Instagram. He's the co-managing partner, along with his father, of Tebe Investment Management and the founder of Nkwashi, a new charter city project in Zambia. Zambia, it's kind of like the junction point between Central Africa, Eastern Africa, and, and Southern Africa, and, and, you know, like Southwestern Africa also, uh, Lake Tanganyika, which is the world's second longest and second like, largest lake by volume is, you know, partly in Zambia. The source of the largest river in Southern Africa is in Zambia. So it's kind of like at the confluence, all these interesting things. Zambia's natural resources, especially copper, made it a target for colonization. But Zambia had a distinctly different experience than its neighbors. You didn't have a, you know, a very militarized colonial experience, as was the case elsewhere, like in, in Kenya or in uh, South Africa. So the British were very sort of like white glove here. And I think part of that is that Zambia was never really seen as a place where they were going to settle. So it was just seen as a, as a resource country. The British occupied what they called Northern Rhodesia from the late 19th century all the way until 1964. After gaining freedom, Zambia began to function as a democracy. However, within a decade of independence, the country was under one party rule. Seven years later, became a single party socialist state, as was the fashion in Africa in those days. And, you know, that was basically the beginning of a, a long and steady decline for the country. The economy was soon in crisis and actually contracted for decades. We ended up losing like three to four times our GDP per capita over the 20 years of socialism that we experienced. And then people basically got to a point where they'd had enough and they demanded you know, liberal democracy again. After a series of coup attempts, where the rebel officers had attempted to announce that they had overthrown the government because it was corrupt. And internal struggles in the 90s that saw former leaders imprisoned. Today, God is great indeed. I'm out. But I've not been told why I was in prison for five months and seven days. Zambia has once again begun the move towards a multi-party democracy. Just last fall, Hakinde Hichilema, who ran for president six times in the last 15 years, was finally elected. As recently as 2017, he too spent time in prison, accused of treason for his role in anti-corruption protests against the former president. Now, Hichilema is committed to an ambitious agenda and has already begun traveling, connecting with other world leaders. Well, it is my honor and pleasure to welcome you, Mr. President, to the White House working to ensure that democracy in Zambia will be bolstered by strong national institutions and a renewed commitment to economic development. For us to be able to run our countries in a manner that will deliver what we may call democracy dividends. That's right. Delivering accelerated economic you know, growth development to offer opportunities to our people. I think, uh, Vice President, that's what will sustain democracy. That's what will make democracy attractive. 
Hechi Lema grew up in a farming family and spent years in international business. His presidency promises a new era for Zambia, one focused on economic growth and greater stability in the government. Muya, who was born in the late 80s, grew up watching Zambia's economic and governance struggles firsthand. Now in his early 30s, he wants his investment firm to be an engine of development, not just for Zambia, but for all of Africa. This vision drives Muya's interest in Nkwashi. You can hear the same far-reaching desire when he explains why he wanted to build a city in the first place. I was asking myself, you know, how can I apply this to fix these problems as opposed to just being like a bystander. I started thinking about the resources I had available to me and it just so happened that my family owned a ranch about a half hour drive out of Lusaka. And it was large enough that, you know, something meaningful could be done there. Moya mentioned Lusaka. That's the capital city of Zambia and the largest city in the country with between two and three million residents. It's a bit larger than Chicago and slightly smaller than Berlin. And the problems he's talking about? Well, the city is growing fast, faster than many of its institutions can cope with. As recently as October of last year, there were major blackouts across Zambia. And power isn't the only element of infrastructure under strain in Lusaka. It's estimated that by 2030, the city will have a shortage of 3 million homes. Part of Moya's drive to build a new city nearby was to add another living and working hub. One that could be a home to professionals and those who want to connect more directly with the rest of the world. So Mkwashi is a satellite town to Lusaka. We like to call it a knowledge city. We're anchoring the city on institutions of learning. And it's been designed to be able to be a, a home to up to 100,000 people. Those learning institutions include a 130-acre university campus and the Explorer School, which provides entirely online education for primary and secondary school. Imagine a school without borders, a school where students and teachers come from places all around the world, from Bahrain to France, Australia to Zambia. In Zambia, it's common for the children of wealthier families to be educated outside of the country, in Johannesburg or even in London, where Muya went to school. The Explorer School, though, also reaches across borders with students in Nigeria, India, and beyond. But it's anchored in Nkwashi. By creating learning institutions in Zambia that are internationally connected, Muya hopes that there will be even more reason for those seeking economic and educational advancement to stay. We're you know, creating these institutions that hopefully can be the engines of initial economic growth. If Explorer School and Explorer Academy are fantastically successful, that then creates a, the natural impetus to then create city number two and three and four and five. Large-scale new city projects like Nkwashi sit squarely at the intersection of public and private institutions. They are often so significant in scope that they require cooperation from local and national governments, in addition to willing investors. Luckily, Muya was prepared to navigate both of those worlds from an early age, whether or not he was fully aware of it. I didn't really grow up with um, a very like boxed-in view of the world. His parents made sure of that. His father is actually one of the architects of Zambia's financial system. He's like a super disciplined, academic type person. And, you know, he, he's also been like a, a central banker and economist and then 
policy maker. So a lot of the conversations that he would have would be around things to do with how to develop Zambia, how to develop Africa at large. His mother was an entrepreneur. She had her own ways of conveying similar values to us, but most of hers were more like practical. So I think everything I learned about business as an example, I learned from her. Growing up in a household with international business interests meant an early window into the wider world. I would go with my parents on their trips to figure out different like commercial undertakings that they'd want to get involved in, like you know, acquiring land and stuff like that at a super young age. So it just created this very like explorer type mindset in me. And I think that's like stuck with me um, into adulthood. But Muya was also an introverted kid who preferred his own company. Luckily, at home, he was in an environment that filled him with a fierce curiosity. His parents nurtured his development, each in their own way. For example, when he was 13, his father gave him a biography of Albert Einstein. His mother? Well, she gave him the power of positive thinking. You know, where my dad is taciturn, she's more expressive. Um, where his interests lie in so like technical facts, hers um, are much more to do with like, you know, like human well-being, right? She's taught me how to build systems and she's taught me how to like lead those systems. And now with a project like Nkwashi, is combining lessons from both parents. Building cities and building institutions of learning, it sits right smack on the intersection between public sector and private sector work. These projects also take a hefty dose of confidence and that explorer mindset that Moya described. Like Patrick Friedman and Mark Lutter, Moya's interest in new cities came from his dissatisfaction with the status quo solutions he saw being offered to the structural problems in Zambia. Without Moya's imagination, the land that is now becoming Nkashi could have just been put to more mundane use. There was the possibility of just subdividing allotments and then selling those, but that also felt very boring and like low impact. Um, and the possibility of of building something more meaningful seemed more interesting. So we're like, okay, we're going to build a city. In the red dirt and scrub brush, Muya saw something possibly transformational that could reach far beyond the 3,000 acres outside of Lusaka. Right now what we have is a situation where Africans, regardless of where they live in the world, are treated as nominal equals, right? So it's, it's one thing to, to be equal at law. It's another thing to be equal, you know, in the way someone regards you in their hearts. And... I think this is what places like Nkwashi represent for me. Mui's clear sense of purpose in building Nkwashi is not always as easy to detect in the world of new cities, nor is the seamless mix of public and private. That intersection can sometimes be an uncomfortable one. Remember, when Paul Romer proposed the notion of charter cities, he was clear. They would be special opportunity zones run by other governments. That idea met with almost instant backlash. The argument is, is that Paul Romer's model was too neo-colonial because he would have these like foreign countries coming and you know intervene. Um, but that when it's private entrepreneurs, because they're not sort of bound to a particular country, uh, then it's not neo-colonial. Isabel Simpson is a PhD candidate at McGill University studying new cities and startup societies. But obviously, from the perspective of the local people, it is very much uh, neocolonialism. Discomfort over foreign governments running cities in other countries is part of what spurred changes in how new cities are discussed and planned. 
Patrick Friedman of Pronomus Capital, who we heard from earlier, is especially interested in thinking of new models for charter city development. That idea that a charter city is operated by a foreign power, that just didn't fly at all. And so today's charter cities are overseen by the host country and often are public-private partnerships with companies that are going to build and operate the city. But this model presents challenges of its own. The gold standard right now is the Honduran Zeta system. In Honduras, laws were passed to seed the ground for new cities' developments. Honduras has begun to create the first two of the 12 regions of development and employment, also known as charter cities. Called the Zeta laws, they were so controversial that they created a constitutional crisis and inspired multiple protest movements. Local suspicion towards new city projects has been common in Honduras. One project, Prospera, has had ongoing tensions with the population that lives near its borders. Prospera has also been criticized for its legal system. A board of seven arbiters, many of them not native to Honduras, oversee private disputes in the city. They're asked to make rulings over residents who may or may not speak English and who are governed by a code that has borrowed liberally from different existing sets of laws. Now, that's a pretty extreme example. Mark Lauder, the director of the Charter Cities Institute, who you heard from at the beginning of this podcast, has been critical of this particular aspect of Prospera. Champions of new cities do, however, speak glowingly about the possibilities of these kinds of mix-and-match legal systems, ones that allow laws to be switched out and updated, like software. From Patrick Friedman. What's interesting to me from an infrastructure perspective is that modifying other kinds of infrastructure, the power systems or sewer systems of a city is very, very difficult, but law is a virtual layer. So it can be modified the same way that you deploy new software builds. And the sources for these new software builds? Well, they can come from almost anywhere. It's a really, really interesting point of leverage to say, can we essentially write better operating systems or copy the existing operating systems, that is, copy functional sets of laws and administrative procedures from countries that work well and bring them to other countries. To critics of the new city movement, this description of governance sounds too straightforward. It is emblematic of the tendency of charter city advocates to oversimplify complex issues. Isabel Simpson goes all the way back to the first moments of Paul Romer's original TED Talk as an example. He begins his talk by showing an associated press photo of African students. And they're sitting under streetlights at an airport and they're sort of bent over their textbooks. Take a look at this picture. It poses a very fascinating puzzle for us. And so already I find this very sort of annoying because when... People have this really bad habit that when they want to illustrate sort of dysfunction or chaos, they use like Africa. These African students are doing their homework under streetlights at the airport in the capital city because they don't have any electricity at home. And Romer does not mention it, but the students, they are from the Republic of Guinea and the airport is, uh, you know, the international airport there and the year is 2007. Let's just pick one. For example, the one in the green shirt. And so then Romer gives one of the students a fictive name. He's like, okay, this guy, we're going to name him, name him Nelson. Nelson. I bet Nelson, Nelson has, uh, a, has cell a cell phone. So here's the puzzle. Why is it that Nelson has access to a cutting-edge technology like the cell phone, but doesn't have access to a 100-year-old technology for generating electric light in the home? Now, in a word, 
The answer is rules. Bad rules can prevent the kind of win-win solution that's available when people can bring new technologies in and make them available to someone like Wilson. Actually, the causes of electricity blackouts are complex and a comprehensive explanation would have required Romer to address, uh, in addition to the sort of poor tariff structures, you know, what he says are the bad rules. Uh, it would have had to talk about the country's weak infrastructures, issues of transmission and distribution losses, supply shortages, lack of diversity in the electricity generation mix, corruption, distorting contract negotiation, and the neocolonial economic situation that thrives on extraction by foreign companies, which actually are the ones grabbing the most electricity at the lowest price. All these complex elements, they don't fit in Romer's sort of narrative about, you know, bad rules. The reason that scholars like Simpson fear the simplification is because simple-sounding problems invite simple solutions that overlook necessary complexities. So if you say you want to build a new city, what is it exactly that you mean by city? Isn't a city a political space where people with different opinions and different ambitions uh, will come and debate and sort of try to create this, you know, better society all the time? Or are you sort of trying to create this sort of community of like-minded people, which ultimately is just sort of a gated community? In addition to political questions about new cities, there are also cultural and historical ones. Zhuang Du is the author of The Shenzhen Experiment, the story of China's instant city. She's also the dean of the Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape, and Design at the University of Toronto. In her book, she pushes back on the popular narrative about Shenzhen, that until 1979, it was a sparsely populated backwater. And after government investment and its designation as a special economic zone, only then did its population and economic output explode. I think it's important to keep in mind is that what accounted for Shenzhen's rapid population growth wasn't necessarily just top-down policy. It was a bottom-up willingness is that people wanted to go there. In her book, Du unpacks how Shenzhen's history allowed it to rapidly transform into the megacity it is today. The centuries of history prior to 1979 is as important as the history of the last four decades. The incredible urbanization and economic growth in Shenzhen was built up on foundations that was already pre-existent. And those foundations took decades, if not millennium, to be built. Du also takes issue with many of the popular statistics about Shenzhen pre-1979 that feed the city built from scratch narrative. People think that in 1979, it was just a small sleeping fishing village of 30,000. First of all, there are no villages that has 30,000, especially a sleepy one and small one at that. Shenzhen was a conglomerate of 2,000 villages and several historic townships that existed for centuries. The population of that 2,000 village conglomerate closer to 300,000. And it was this pre-existing network that ushered contemporary Shenzhen into being. There was so much local indigenous knowledge and organizations and economies and local networks and international networks of those local indigenous villages that formed and actually allowed Shenzhen to survive its most difficult startup period at the first five years or the first 10 years. 
the willingness in the new city world to downplay this part of Shenzhen's story in favor of a more ahistorical, top-down narrative worries do. City making, it's a very, very complex and difficult process. The misconception that Shenzhen grew from scratch, that it was a blank slate or tabula rasa, is, I think, the most dangerous misconception that one can take zero, one can take a blank sheet of paper, and that all you need to do is add money and policy that you can have a city. But looking at some of the proposed new city projects, it seems like that's exactly what certain investors hope to do. In 2020, Hong Kong real estate developer Ivan Ko proposed a creatively named new city, Nextopolis, to be located in Ireland and populated by residents of Hong Kong who wanted to escape that city's increasingly challenging political environment. There was also a proposal in Singapore for a floating city that could house migrant workers and move when needed to be near construction projects. These simple-sounding solutions point to other important questions that need to be addressed in the new city ecosystem, like who has a say in governance. Simpson points out that many of the cities cited as examples of new city developments, Shenzhen, Dubai, Singapore, are also those with restrictive, even authoritarian, national governments. It's very bizarre that Charter Cities Entrepreneur would use this very authoritarian model as their blueprint for this sort of pro-free market, pro-freedom, uh, individual freedom developments that they're trying to do. One of the most high-profile new city projects currently under construction, Saudi Arabia's Neon, fits this mold. The contemporary city needs a full redesign. What if we removed cars? What if we got rid of streets? What if we innovated in the public space? Backed by hundreds of billions of dollars of government money, this ambitious plan includes everything from automated ports to city modules spread out over hundreds of miles of desert and connected by high-speed rail. Promotional materials make it sound almost irresistible. As one Wall Street Journal article put it, it's Disneyland meets Dubai. Through advanced manufacturing methods, we'll create green industries of the future with sustainability and reusability built into their DNA. Because any business destined to change the world must also protect it. Neom is part of Saudi Vision 2030 the flagship project of the authoritarian Saudi government of Mohammed bin Salman. It has ruthlessly targeted journalists, activists, and critics at home and abroad. Entrepreneurs who are very sort of insistent on, you know, freedom of association, freedom of movement, freedom of speech, uh, their model for charter cities are authoritarian countries. Nkwashi, however, is not this kind of project. It's being built in Zambia by someone with deep roots in the country. And it is being supported by a new administration that is committed to using economic development to build more democratic institutions. Now, some form of government support is crucial in creating a new city. The projects that succeed will have both government support and a significant connection to the place they are being built. And Kwashi has that connection. Even the name of the city speaks to its Zambian roots. It means eagle. And so the Zambian national bird is the fish eagle. 
And so we decided to like name uh, the city after the national bird. And we chose to name it in a language that was indigenous to the area. However, these close ties don't mean the city and the ideas that come along with it will be instantly adopted. I think people think of us as being fairly forward thinking and maybe a little bit crazy sometimes, but I, I think in a good way. Some might view Nkwashi as crazy, but that hasn't really harmed its popularity. We sold out in like three months um, that initial batch of, I think, 80 five-acre plots it was. And Muya firmly believes in the mission behind Nkwashi, not just the city, but what it could represent. So I, I see Nkwashi as a, as a beta, right? So it's a proof of concept. I think now speaking as, a, as I guess, an African, I, I think one of the challenges that Africa has had is that we haven't yet done really big, interesting things as a continent. You know, the type of things where people look at them and then say, oh, wow, that's like super cool. That has a lot of positive impact, not just for Africa, but for the world at large. That drive to change perception is a personal one for Muya, shaped by experiences he had during his university years in London. At 17, he left Zambia, hopeful and a bit apprehensive. He made friends quickly and found community in the classroom. However, while in London, he also experienced everyday racism. Now, this might not sound that revelatory. A young African man encountering racism in early 2000s London. What makes these experiences so important is the way that Moya talks about them. Running in the train station to obviously catch the train, and then policemen in the train station stop you and it's like, where are you running to? And it's like, I'm in a train station. It's obvious I'm running to catch the train. You know, it's interactions like that where I felt like I was nominally equal. Did you catch that? Nominally equal. Moya uses the same words talking about these incidents as he does when describing the necessity of Nkwashi. If Nkwashi is proof of concept and other similar new cities can be built around Africa, Muya hopes that, in time, through the educational and institutional development they bring, the international perception of Africa and Africans can change. In the end, there are as many questions about the future of new cities now as there were 12 years ago when Romer gave his talk. Maybe even more since there are real projects being launched. I was once a die-hard evangelist for new cities, a true believer. I still see the promise in the model, but now I approach the subject with more humility. Basically, I'm trying to remember how little I know about what the next decades of new city development will entail. The world of new cities is shifting all the time. There have been some major changes just in the last few weeks. Remember the Zede laws in Honduras? They don't even exist anymore. They were unanimously repealed by Honduras's National Congress. I'm still optimistic that some version of new cities will fit into the fabric of solutions to economic challenges. But I also recognize that in 30 years, the actual model or models that succeed may look very different from many of the projects that have been proposed so far. In the meantime, knowing there are people like Muya out there, thoughtful enough to meaningfully consider the big questions facing their societies, and daring enough to work on audacious solutions gives me a lot of hope. 
Beneath the Surface is a production of Stripe Press. The senior producers for this series are myself and Everett Katigbak. This episode was produced by Jack Rossiter-Munley. Whitney Chen was our production manager. Our sound mixer and sound designer was Jim McKee, and we had editing support from Astrid Landon. Original music for this episode was composed by Auribus. Visit press.stripe.com to learn more about Stripe Press. That's it for this episode. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. This is Beneath the Surface.